0: my gifts as a pastor, I call myself a utility pastor, like a utility knife. It has a lot of different tools. You just pull out the one you need at the particular moment. I really see myself as that kind of pastor. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
1: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. We're speaking in good faith today with Rev. Elizabeth McVicker. Rev. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming in today.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Steve.
1: Just a little bit of background. You were born in Burma, now Myanmar. Yes. Your parents were Methodists. Yes. You were Chinese descent in Burma, also a minority there. Yes. And then after coming to the States, uh, among other educational achievements, you go to Yale. Yes. And then you go on to get a divinity degree. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you share the rest of the story. First of all, I'm just, uh, as I said, grateful you're here. I wonder if you would tell me what your very first memories are of what church was or what belief was.
0: Okay. I was born United Methodist, and actually I'm third-generation Methodist. We actually were sponsored by a United Methodist Church to come to the United States from Burma. Burma had become independent after World War II and became a very socialist but military-run government. We wanted to leave. So we applied to the World Council of Churches, which matched us with this Methodist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Their one criterion for sponsoring a family was they wanted the family to be Christian as well, and since we were already Methodist, it was a really good fit. Mm. I was raised in that church, grew up going to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, sang in the children's choir, was an acolyte bell choir. When I was in college, I worked at that church in the summertime, helping with the younger kids. I've just always been in the church. It was our spiritual home, but also our main social network in our lives. And and these were the people who, when we first arrived, they had a home with furniture set up for us, and they taught my parents English, and they showed us how to go to the grocery store and took us to school, and we're really, are still lifelong
1: friends of ours. How old were you during this transition?
0: I was two years old, and it was my mother and father, and then my three older brothers who came.
1: Well, that explains the strong Oklahoma accent. That oh, was you the- can hear <laughs> it? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> How nice to find a church home like that during a, such a huge transition. That's uh, Some people get lost during transitions like that.
0: Well, it was a huge blessing to us to have that kind of reception in the United States. It was really the only church that I knew growing up. We didn't shop around. We didn't visit even other United Methodist churches. We went to Boston Avenue United Methodist Church <laughs> each and every Sunday, I didn't know until later that this was actually one of the five largest United Methodist Churches in the country at the time. It had 4,000 members, and by the time I graduated from high school, it grew to 8,000 members.
1: Wow. I'm wondering how you feel from having been in a very large congregation like that to opportunities that you've had to minister in much smaller congregations.
0: I didn't pay very much attention to how church ran growing up. I had never (laughs) attended a church committee meeting. I really never even saw myself as a pastor because all of the ministers were white men. Mm. And I just happened into the ministry so the churches that I have served I understand large church in some ways having grown up in one with many different pastors and each pastor has their specialty as opposed to the smaller church where the one pastor does everything and I have served in larger churches than the ones I'm serving now with two or three other pastors I can operate in a larger church But my gifts as a pastor, I call myself a utility pastor, like a utility knife. It has a lot of different tools. You just pull out the one you need at the particular moment. I really see myself as that kind of pastor. And so serving a smaller setting works for me really well. It
1: seems like you'd have a chance to get to know people better in a situation like that more deeply.
0: I think that is definitely one of the advantages of a smaller congregation. I do get to spend more time with people.
1: So what was your first inkling? Like, oh my goodness, I'm actually wondering about going into the clergy.
0: Okay. So you mentioned that I attended Yale, and I really went to Yale on a fluke. It was my senior year in high school. I was thinking about the colleges I wanted to attend and and had Johns Hopkins and Washington University because they had strong medical programs. Mm. But then I received a 40-page full-color brochure from Yale, and it was a beautiful, beautiful publication. I thought, I can't just throw this in the trash. Here, let me just fill out the last page, and I'll send it in. I got into Yale, ended up with an American Studies degree, and intended to go on and become a professor in Asian American Studies. But I wanted to take a little time to study the Bible a little bit. I had been raised in the church, but I really didn't feel biblically literate. I couldn't really explain where from the Bible gave me some understanding of my own theology. So I thought, I'll go to seminary. And the chaplain at Yale suggested Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. So I went there. I thought, that's perfect. You see Berkeley's right across the street. I'll get my foot in the door while I'm doing this two-year MA program. But the first semester at seminary, I felt God calling me into the ministry. And a big part of that was meeting other future clergy people and seeing that there are lots of different gifts that God needs in the ministry, that God calls in the ministry, that the middle-aged or the white men that had always been my models for ministry, were important. But there were so many other models that I could see at seminary.
1: I'm not sure I believe it was just a fluke that you took that path, you know, looking back. Do you feel like, well, the hand of God was in this?
0: Absolutely. It was (laughs) definitely God knowing what I needed in order to see myself as a pastor, creating the opportunities for me to see that. I got a very nice scholarship to Pacific School of Religion. I'd also applied to Yale Div, and it was on the West Coast where there were a lot more Asian American people, and and I could have a stronger sense of my identity in that respect as well. But no, I don't really believe in coincidences or flukes.
1: Because everyone would describe this differently, for you, what do you mean when you say, I felt God calling me to the ministry? What did you actually feel or think or what experience did you have?
0: Well, the first step for me was even seeing that I could be a minister. I had always put clergy on a higher pedestal than regular people. Hmm. And they were all white men, so it never occurred to me that I could be a pastor. Here's a funny story. I'm staying in the dormitory in seminary with the other students, and we have a common kitchen. So I went down to the kitchen to put a few groceries in the fridge. And when I looked in the fridge, there was this huge vat of wine in there. Up until then, I thought, well, if I'm going to be rubbing elbows with these future ministers, I better be more holy than I usually am. So I stood up taller. I said, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, which I never do. And when I opened that refrigerator door and saw that wine, I thought, you know, if these future ministers can drink this much wine, I'm just going to go back to being myself. (laughs) That was the first step for me, just seeing that someone like me could even be a minister. But then as I started to take the Bible and theology classes, it really clicked with me that I thought I was supposed to go into academia and help other Asian Americans coming behind me with their identity and their sense of community and place in the world— as a professor, but I realized it wasn't as a professor that I would do that work. It was as a pastor that I would bring a spiritual understanding mm. of God to younger Asian American people. God was just just silently or quietly saying, your path is in the ministry. I really wasn't sure about this call because I had never heard that before. But I I said, you know, I really don't think I can go wrong Hmm. going into the ministry. So if this isn't really a call, well, I don't think it's a mistake to serve God through the church. But it turns out that it was, I believe it is my path in life. I can't imagine doing anything else, even though most of the people I serve are not Asian American nowadays. They've always been primarily Caucasian, but at the church here in Salt Lake City, the downtown church, First United Methodist, it's an incredibly diverse congregation with Pakistani people, Tongan people, people from Africa, Mm. Asian Americans, gay and lesbian people, white middle-class people. I'm loving that kind of diversity.
1: Oh, I'm glad. I'm wondering... Are there moments, not just about ministry, but if you think back and and had to describe this, are there moments that are the reason that you believe in God? I guess, why do you believe in God? Can you even put your finger on that?
0: I believe in God because I have had personal spiritual experiences of the holy and sacred. I know without a doubt that there is a God that exists that is beyond this material world that works through the material world, but it's more powerful than the material world. I've been convicted of the existence of the power, but mostly the love of God. That experience of being claimed by God, of being protected and helped by God in my life is undeniable, and so that's why I believe.
1: After years of serving, uh, also you served in Arizona for Mm -hmm. a while as a pastor, and then I'm not sure if there was an in-between before you came to Salt Lake City.
0: There was. So I was ordained in Arizona in 1998 and served three congregations there. And then I moved to Wyoming and served a church there for seven years in Cheyenne. Hmm. And then three years ago, I moved to Salt Lake City and was appointed to these two churches.
1: Are there things that as you look back over those years, are there things you understand or believe differently now than you did 20 years ago at the beginning of this journey spiritually?
0: Oh, Absolutely. I would say an understanding of the spiritual world has grown in terms of the power of Jesus Christ to overcome darkness and evil, the importance of working through community, through the church particularly, but also the hugeness, the mysteriousness of God that in our individual religious traditions, we seek to know God, to articulate our understanding of God. And all of that is very meaningful and powerful, but that our individual traditions don't define God, don't limit God. And that's the catch for people who choose to express their faith in God through religious institutions is to value those traditions and understandings while at the same time recognizing that God is much bigger than any theological framework that humans can develop. Allowing other people to come to their own understandings of this God is A little tricky for some people, but it's not for me. I just think that they have a different, they see a different part of God than I do, Mm. which is as valid. And perhaps it's what speaks to their hearts. They may drive me crazy also (laughs) because we disagree on who God is, but I can still honor their seeking to know God in their life.
1: It seems to me that sometimes people are threatened a little bit when they are maybe not as secure in their own faith. But as you get to know people of different faiths, I think it makes you, in most cases, kind of relax and be more at ease in your own tradition.
0: I think that is a very important part of being able to interact with respect with people of other faiths is to be secure in your own faith to have an understanding of God as being transcendent.
1: Because we divide ourselves so much by, I'll never speak to, a, I don't want to live in the neighborhood of someone of this other political persuasion, whatever mine is, all of this. It just seems like to actually know people, like you said, that God is bigger than any one tradition. Has to be.
0: Yes. And I think that was the whole point of Jesus' ministry, was that he wanted us to get away from doctrine and and instead live out our lives in a way that led to building up community and sharing love and compassion. We humans, we Christians, quickly turned that upside down and did exactly what Jesus tried to reverse in our institutions. But when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life— He wasn't talking about a doctrine, saying you need to believe in this particular doctrine in order to receive eternal life. It was a way of life. It was a truth an understanding of the world, not about religious tenets that he was getting at.
1: You've talked quite a bit about community. I've heard that come up several times. And it seems like that definitely is an outgrowth of your faith, not only a community of believers, but to be involved with the community. At least from what I read about what your congregations do in Salt Lake City, Will you tell me yes. a little bit about that.
0: Well, Centenary United Methodist is uh, very mission minded. It's a small congregation, predominantly older women, average ages in their seventies, but they have always been known for their social justice. Hmm. And their concern for the poor, not only in Salt Lake City, but all over the world. They are active with the St. Vincent's Dining Hall. There's a lady there that's been serving lunch on the first Friday of every month for over 30 years, and she's still going. Wow. And then they support an orphanage in Africa and they've been doing that for many, many years. First United Methodist Church is a younger congregation, and they're in downtown Salt Lake City, so our neighbors are people who, many of them, do not have homes. They're living on the streets. So about four years ago, before I arrived as a pastor, they decided to serve breakfast. They saw that there was a need on Sunday mornings, people to come inside and and have a home-cooked breakfast with a, a solid amount of protein. So now we're serving about 70 people, predominantly homeless. Actually, the meal is the vehicle for our real intention, which is to build community. We realize that there are all kinds of agencies in Salt Lake that provide housing or food stamps or job search or whatever. But the one thing that the church can provide is community. It can provide a sense of dignity that they don't receive anywhere else. They're so used to being ignored when they're passed on the streets, really dehumanized
1: Well, you think of the times when it says Jesus was going along and someone's yelling from afar to come and everyone's going, shh, don't bother him, don't bother him. Exactly. (laughs) And he hears that voice and goes right to that person to meet their need.
0: Right. And their healing wasn't only about physical need, like when he fed the 5,000 or even when he healed people's skin diseases. It was his spiritual need. The healing came in bringing them back into the community. And so that's what we do at First United Methodist Church. For an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, we bring people who are the lepers of society into community.
1: I wonder if I could ask a few questions that focus on your own faith a little bit. I had read that there's communion every Sunday in the services. Yes. Not so much what that means to a community or a congregation. What does that mean to you? both to participate but also to officiate, just personally?
0: Salt Lake City is unique in its religious landscape with its strong Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints influence. And what I discovered was that if you were not part of that church, you needed a place to belong the people who are at the united methodist churches have a really strong sense of the unique religious perspective and they value that they savor the uniqueness of the united methodist church so so they they serve communion at both churches every sunday that i've never experienced that in other churches in wyoming or arizona mm. And it's because the people are so devout in their faithfulness that if they are choosing to be Methodist, it's really important for them to understand what makes them distinct and to hold on to their traditions. Serving communion is a blessing also because some of the people in my church were turned away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because they were gay or lesbian. And they found the Methodist Church, and when they came, they've told me they never thought they'd be allowed to take communion ever again. Mm. So when they receive communion each Sunday, it's like precious treasure to their spirits. So it makes me appreciate the power of communion as well. And communion is, comes from the same Latin word as community, that people are now part of the community.
1: Isn't that interesting how somebody else's appreciation for something can make you see anew something that maybe was had just become a habit?
0: Right. You take for granted, you know, when I came from Cheyenne, Wyoming, or I grew up in the Bible Belt in Oklahoma, Methodist churches were huge. Everybody had this Protestant understanding, and actually it makes me think about the early church. When the first Christians came to express their belief in Jesus Christ, they were a minority, and they had to hold on to their understanding of Jesus and treat it as treasure in the face of terrible persecution. Not that Methodists experienced persecution in Salt Lake City, but that same experience of being a religious minority is similar.
1: What are the things in personal practice— whether it's meditation or prayer or readings or whatever it might be for you, what are the things that make you feel the most in touch with God?
0: Most people's Sabbath is not my Sabbath. I'm working on my (laughs) Sabbath. I'm leading worship. I'm thinking about what's coming next. I'm thinking about the message and how I'm going to say it and people's needs in the congregation. So I am very, very staunch in terms of taking my Sabbath. I take mine on Mondays. On those days, I just have time alone with myself and with God. Those are the days when I will read for fun because I don't have to think about my sermon till the next day. (laughs) And when I will simply reconnect with God. Yesterday I was up in Honeyville to soak in the hot springs. I just went up by myself and God and we got my head cleared and <laughs> I got a perspective on some things that are going on. I watched the sunset and remembered that that it's not all up to me. That God is God is at work in this world.
1: Were your parents still living when you became a pastor? Yes. Were they proud?
0: Well actually my father my father died after my first year in seminary. But he knew I had a call into ministry and yes, they were both very proud. They were surprised. Mm. I had always wanted to be a doctor growing up and then when I said I wanted to be a professor and then a, a minister, they were surprised but they were pleased.
1: What a journey from their experiences both of war and being immigrants. More than once, I mean, the family coming from China and then coming here to the States.
0: Very much so. So my mother was born in China, and she moved to Burma when she was 11. And my father was born in Burma. They both lived through World War II, which was targeted by the Japanese army. My father's family ended up having to flee their home in Rangoon into the jungles of Burma because the Japanese were coming, they were looking for the Chinese, and his life was changed, completely altered. He never got to go to college Mm. because of World War II. And so for them to experience that kind of danger and devastation in their life, and, and then go to the United States and create a new life and new opportunities For me, it is astounding that in one generation, things can become so much more promising. Mm,
1: I think maybe we have time for two more questions. Okay. One is, how do you feel that God communicates with you? What are the ways that you notice answers or guidance?
0: I have to be intentional about taking time aside from my busy routines and simply being with God so I do that on my Sabbath. I also Thursday mornings I have my yoga class where God often will speak to me and and it has While to While
1: you're in down dog.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and getting out of my routine is critical hmm. for me to hear God. And usually the message is It's not all up to you, Elizabeth. I'm over here too, so you can take a break every once in a while.
1: Don't carry the weight of the world for just the next little while. Yes, yeah. (laughs) What should I ask you that I don't know to ask you?
0: My vision for my ministry, what it is that I'm about, the whole mission for my ministry, it's about building out the roof of the kingdom of God so that it includes as many people as Hmm. possible. Actually, the roof is already there, but it's about making visible this roof so that people understand that they've always been under the watchful eye and the care of God. And that as they understand that God has always been there in their life, they see a sense of place in the community and a sense of purpose in their life.
1: Rev. Elizabeth McVicker, thank you for speaking with me in good faith.
0: Thank you, Steve. It's been wonderful.
1: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. Thanks to our guest, Rev. Elizabeth McVicker, for generously sharing her stories and her faith. You can hear this and all of our interviews on demand at our website, byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to the podcast. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.